Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the death of Princess Diana and the many conspiracy theories that have sprung up surrounding her death. The problem that the establishment will have is that they have covered up the inquest, never been an inquest. They have not allowed a public inquiry into what happened to Diana in this country. And that has fueled already conspiracy theories for the last six years. Princess Diana was born into the British nobility and grew up close to the royal family on their Sandringham estate. In 1981, while working as a nursery teacher's assistant, she became engaged to Prince Charles, the eldest son of Queen Elizabeth II. Their wedding took place at St. Paul's Cathedral in 1981 and made her Princess of Wales, a role which was well received by the public. They had two sons, William and Harry, who were then second and third in line to the succession of the British throne. However, all was not as it seemed on the home front. Diana's marriage to Charles suffered due to their incompatibility and extramarital affairs. They separated in 1992, soon after the breakdown of their relationship became public knowledge. Now, that was during the very infamous and controversial 1995 panorama interview with Martin Bashir, which I will go into later on in this podcast. Their marital difficulties became increasingly publicized in their divorce in 1996. It wasn't actually because Diana wanted to. It was because the Queen actually got involved due to Martin Bashir year's panorama interview in 1995 again i'll go into that a little bit later in this podcast diana's activism and glamour made her an international icon and earned her enduring popularity as well as unprecedented public scrutiny exacerbated by her tumultuous private life again we'll get into that soon one big controversy was her landmines campaign that stirred up a lot of controversy with politicians chastising her for meddling in very delicate political affairs she was even accused of having a political motivation behind her campaign which diana strenuously denied there was a lot of problems with this because again Martin Bashir and I think there was Martin Bashir's interview there was also the newspaper tabloid I think it was a French newspaper tabloid also had some dealings with that as well she had been involved with the British Royal Cross for several years before the charity organized and supported her January 1997 trip to Angola it was there in Hambu province I'm sorry if I get that wrong that she came across the work of the Halo Trust which had been working to clear landmines in Angola since 1994 amid the then ongoing civil war there that civil war in Angola in particular which remains one of the world's most heavily landmine contaminated countries ended in 2002 after more than 25 years of intermittent conflict. Diana's support for an international treaty banning landmines and her public work with groups seeking to eradicate them was seen at the time as a political stance, not merely a charitable one. Members of the UK's Conservative Party, which was in power at the time, accused Diana of going against the government's official policy and of indicating her support of one party over another. Earl Howe, the UK's then junior defence minister, called her, and I quote, a loose cannon, and said she was uninformed about the issues of landmines. Peter Viggers, a Tory member of the Defence Select Committee at the time, also spoke out, saying, and I quote, We all know landmines and other weapons are vicious and nasty. The question is how best to negotiate so they are not used in future. The government's policy on this is 
has been an extremely careful one and the statement made by the Princess of Wales have not been in line with their policy, end quote. Despite the controversy, Diana insisted that her interest in the cause was not politically motivated. I'm not a political figure, as I said at the time, and I'd like to reiterate now, my interests are humanitarian. That's why I felt drawn to this human tragedy, end quote. And Diana said that during a speech in June of 1997 about her trip. And I quote again, How can countries which manufacture and trade in these weapons square their conscience with such human devastation, end quote. Now here's what I meant about the French newspaper earlier. So she also landed in very hot water over remarks she made to French newspaper Le Monde journalist Annick Cosian, I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, that she had criticised the Tory government for its hopeless policy on landmines. Near the end of an interview, the main topic of the conversation had been her humanitarian work, which was quite interesting. The sentence that got Diana in a lot of trouble reads, it's the Labour government's position on this subject has always been clear. It is going to do great work. Its predecessor was really hopeless, end quote. Because of the resulting fallout, Princess Diana made it very clear that she would not agree to any more newspaper interviews. Now, this to me shows just how much the media can twist things and make innocent sentences out to be something totally different. However, there was a small, positive, almost, bittersweet ending to her landmines legacy she became so well known for that sadly she would never get to see. Her untimely death in August of 1997 came only a few months before the United Nations Mine Ban Treaty, a legally binding prohibition on the use stockpiling, production, and transfer of landmines. 164 countries have been parties to the agreement, which is formally known as the Ottawa Treaty. Diana was also known for her other charitable endeavours, such as her role in the 1987 opening of the UK's first HIV-AIDS unit in London, which was designed specifically to treat patients with the virus at the time when it was perceived with much stigma. Two years before her death, Diana wrote an explosive note that fueled conspiracy theorists for years, and her death that it had been staged and that Prince Charles had something to do with it. In the note, Diana said she believed her then-husband was plotting to get rid of her in a staged car crash, paving the way for him to marry his son's former nanny, Tiggy Leg Burke. Diana was reportedly obsessed with the mistaken idea that her husband and Tiggy were having an affair, which turned out to be a false allegation that deeply upset the nanny. In the letter she wrote, and I quote, I'm sitting here at my desk today in October, longing for someone to hug me and encourage me to keep strong and hold my head high. This particular phase of my life is the most dangerous. My husband is planning an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury in order to make the path clear for him to marry Tiggy, end quote. I feel this is the most dangerous phase in my life. He's planning an an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury. In 2005, almost a decade after Diana's death, Prince Charles was questioned by the police as part of Operation Pageant. The operation sought to investigate a number of theories surrounding the cause of Diana's crash, launched by the British Metropolitan Police in 2004. Prince Charles was interviewed at St. James Palace as a witness two years into the investigation after the note became public in 2003. When Charles was asked about the note and if he had any knowledge of it, he stated that he did not know about the note's existence until parts of it were reported to the media and appeared in the newspaper. However, the controversies don't end there. Princess Diana's note was written around about the time she did her famous BBC panorama interview with controversial journalist Martin Bashir, again, which is something I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast. The reason the interview became so controversial was because during the interview, Princess Diana admitted to having an affair, said Prince Charles' affair with Camilla Parker Bowles, now his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, had made her feel worthless, spoke of there being three of us in the marriage, which caused her to be split up from Prince Charles and that she had to end up getting a divorce because the Queen stepped in at this point, said she she had bulimia and self-harmed, suggested Prince Charles might not be able to adapt to being king, said Prince Charles' staff were waging a campaign against her. And I mean, more than 20 million people watched the interview and it caused huge controversy. It wasn't long after the wedding before you were you became pregnant. 
What was your reaction when you learned that the child was a boy? Enormous relief. I felt the whole country was in labour with me. <laughs> and enormous relief. But I had actually known William was going to be a boy because the scan had shown it, so it was no surprise. Had you always wanted to have a family? Yes, I came from a family where there were four of us. So we had enormous fun there. And then William and Harry arrived. Fortunately, two boys. It would have been a little tricky if it had been two girls. But that in itself brings responsibilities of bringing them up. William's future being as it is, and Harry a sort of like a form of a backup in that aspect. How did the rest of the royal family react when they learnt that the child that you were to have was going to be a boy? Mm. Well, everybody was thrilled to bits. It has been a quite a difficult pregnancy. I hadn't been very well throughout it. So by the time William arrived, it was great relief because it was all peaceful again, and I was well for a time. Then I was unwell with postnatal depression, which no one ever discusses postnatal depression. You have to read about it afterwards. And that in itself was a bit of a difficult time. You'd wake up in the morning feeling you didn't want to get out of bed, uh, you felt misunderstood, and um, just very, very low in yourself. Was this completely out of character for you? Yes, very much so. I've never had a, never had had a depression in my life. But then when I analysed it, I could see that the changes I'd made in the last year had all caught up with me, and my body had said, we want a rest. What was the, the family's reaction to your postnatal depression? Well, maybe I was the first person ever to be in this family who ever had a depression, or was ever openly tearful. And obviously that was daunting, because if you've never seen it before, how do you support it? What effect did the depression have on your marriage? Well, it gave everybody a wonderful new label. It's Diana's unstable and Diana's um, mentally imbalanced. And unfortunately, that seems to have stuck on and off over the years. According to press reports, it was suggested that it was around this time things became so difficult that you actually tried to injure yourself. Mm. Is that true? Mm. When no one listens to you, or you feel no one's listening to you, all sorts of things start to happen. For instance, you have so much pain inside yourself that you try and hurt yourself on the outside because you want help, but it's the wrong help you're asking for. People see it as crying wolf or attention-seeking, and they think because you're in the media all the time, you've got enough attention, inverted commas. But I was actually crying out because I wanted to get better in order to go forward and continue my duty and my role as wife, mother, Princess of Wales. So, I, uh, yes, I did inflict upon myself. I didn't like myself. I was ashamed that I couldn't cope with the pressures. What did you actually do? Well, I just hurt my arms and my legs. And I work in environments now where I see women doing similar things. And I'm able to understand completely where they're coming from. The depression was resolved, as you say. But it was subsequently reported that you suffered bulimia. Mm. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. I had bulimia for a number of years. And that's like a secret disease you inflicted upon yourself because your self-esteem is to low ebb and you don't think you're worthy or valuable. You fill your stomach up four or five times a day, some, some do it more, and it gives you a feeling of comfort. It's like having a pair of arms around you, but it's temporarily. 
temporary. Then you, you are disgusted at the bloatedness of your stomach, and then you bring it all up again. And it's a, it's a repetitive pattern, which is very destructive to yourself. How often would you do that on a daily basis? Depends on the pressures going on. If I'd been on an, what I call an away day, where I'd been up part of the country all day, I'd come home feeling pretty empty because my engagements at that time would be to do with people dying, people very sick, people, marriage is the problem, all that. And I'd come home and it would be very difficult to know how to comfort myself, having been comforted lots of other people. So it would be a regular pattern to jump into the fridge. It was a symptom of what was going on in my marriage. I was crying out for help but giving the wrong signals. And people were using my bulimia as a coat on a hanger. They decided that was the problem. Diana was unstable. And so you subjected yourself to this phase of binging and, and vomiting? You could say the word subjected, but it was my escape mechanism, and it worked for me at that time. Did you seek help from any other members of the royal family? No. You, you have to know that when you have bulimia, you're very ashamed of yourself and you hate yourself. So, um, and people think you're wasting food. So it doesn't, you don't discuss it with people. And the thing about bulimia is your weight always stays the same. Whereas with anorexia, you visibly shrink. So you can pretend the whole way through. There's no proof. The biography of the Prince of Wales, written by Jonathan Dimbleby, which, as you know, was published last year, suggested that you and your husband had very different outlooks, very different interests. Would you agree with that? No. I think we had a great deal of interest. We, were both, we both liked people, both liked country life, both loved children, um, work in the cancer field, work in hospices. But I was portrayed in the media at that time, if I remember rightly, as someone, because I hadn't passed any O-levels and taken any A-levels, I was stupid. And I made the grave mistake once of saying to a child I was thick as a plank in order to ease the child's nervousness, of which it did. But it, that headline went all around the world. And I rather regret saying it. <laughs> the Prince of Wales, in, in the biography, is described as a great thinker, a man with a tremendous range of interests. What did he think of your interests? Well, I don't think I was allowed to have any. I think that I've always been the 18-year-old girl he got engaged to, so uh, I don't think I've been given any credit for growth. And my goodness, I've had to grow. <laughs> Around 1986, again according to the biography written by Jonathan Dimbleby about your husband, he says that your husband renewed his relationship with Mrs Camilla Parker Bowles. Were you aware of that? Yes, I was. But I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. What evidence did you have that their relationship was continuing even though you were married? A, a woman's instinct is a very good one. <laughs> so you were isolated? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. By the December of that year, as you say, you'd agreed to a legal separation. Mm -hmm. What were your feelings at the time?
deep, deep, profound sadness. So we'd, we had struggled to keep it going, but obviously we'd, all, we'd both run out of steam. And in a way, I suppose it could have been a relief for us both that we'd finally made our minds up. But my husband asked for separation and I supported it. It was not your idea? No, not at all. I come from a divorced background and I didn't want to go into that one again. What happened next? We, I, I asked my husband if we could put the announcement out before the children came back for school, for Christmas holidays, because they were protected in the school they were at. And he did that. And it came out on December the 9th. I was on an engagement up north. I heard it on the radio. And it was just very, very sad. Really sad. A fairy tale had come to an end. And most importantly, our marriage had taken a turn, a different turn. Do you think the Prince of Wales will ever be king? I don't think any of us know the answer to that. And obviously it's a question that's in everybody's head. But who knows? Who knows what fate will produce? Who knows what circumstances will provoke? But you would know him better than most people. Hmm. Do you think he would wish to be king? There was always conflict on that subject with him when we discussed it. And I understood that conflict because it's a very demanding role, being Prince of Wales, but it's equally a more demanding role, being king. And being Prince of Wales produces more freedom now, and being king would be a little bit more suffocating. And because I know the character, I would think that the top job, as I call it, would bring enormous limitations to him. And I don't know whether he could adapt to that. Would it be your wish that when Prince William comes of age, that he were to succeed the Queen rather than the, prince, the current Prince of Wales? My wish is that my husband finds peace of mind, and from that follows other things, yes. An inquiry conducted by former Supreme Court Judge John Dyson found last month that Bashir used deceitful methods to secure the interview by commissioning fake bank statements. A graphic artist working for the BBC said he'd been asked by Martin Bashir to produce fake bank statements. These appeared to show payments by a newspaper group to a former member of staff of Earl Spencer, Princess Diana's brother. The Dyson report says that this was to gain Earl Spencer's confidence so he would introduce Bashir to Diana. When questioned by BBC bosses, Bashir admitted to having the statements mocked up but repeatedly denied showing these documents to Earl Spencer. There were other deceitful tactics used by al-Bashir which included statements of Princess Diana's private secretary Patrick Jefferson and Prince Charles' private secretary Richard Aylard which contained information that had probably been fabricated by Bashir, commissioned fake bank statements to persuade her that officials were being paid by MI5 and the media for information about her. Bashir told Diana her phone was bugged and Prince Charles was having an affair with their son's nanny. Bashir also used the fake statements to persuade her MI5 was spying on her. He did this to deceive and induce Diana's brother Charles Spencer to gain her trust and arrange a meeting with the princess. By this deceitful behaviour, therefore, Mr. Bashir succeeded in engineering the meeting that led to the interview. Bashir's panorama interview with Diana, during which the late royal famously claimed there were three of us in her marriage to Prince Charles, swiftly led to an order from Queen Elizabeth that Diana and Charles should divorce. They had separated in 1992. Earl Spencer stated that al-Bashir's documents played a hugely influential role in his decision to approach Diana about the interview, as they alleged that a member of his staff was being paid to leak information about the princess's family. It also transpired 
required that police never interviewed Bashir in regards to his role in alleged illegal and deceitful tactics used against Diana, something they deeply regret even to this very day. This interview became so controversial that Simone Simmons says the 1995 BBC Panorama interview with its three of us in the marriage comment led to Diana's divorce from Charles before a tragic car accident. She claims Bashir poisoned the princess with lies, insisting her phones were bugged and staff were selling stories to win her trust. Simone Simmons was quoted as saying, and I quote, he was an out and out bastard. He destroyed her physiologically and made her paranoid, saying the royals wanted to bump her off and to distrust her loyal staff and friends. We nicknamed Martin Bashir the poison dwarf. The interview led to her divorce and losing her HRH titles. There is no doubt in my mind that Diana would still be alive today if she hadn't spoken to Bashir, end quote. Martin Bashir was an extremely controversial journalist who has worked for the BBC, NBC, and MSNBC. His career as a journalist began in 1986 and he worked for the BBC until 1999 on Song of Praise, Public Eye, and Panorama. He then moved over to ITV and worked on special documentary programs as well as on features for Tonight with Trevor McDonald and also working in the US for both ABC and NBC News. His notable high-profile interviews include the disgraced Tory peer Lord Archer, Tony Martin, the Norfolk farmer who was jailed for killing a bird and former footballer George Best. Bashir has conducted many other interviews with controversial people as well, including Louise Woodward, who as a teenager was famously accused of murdering a baby in her care, the five suspects in the Stephen Lawrence case, Michael Barrymore, Jeffrey Archer, Charles Ingram, and of course, Michael Jackson, the last of which he made a controversial documentary about. The controversy and outcry about the documentary was because in 2003, Martin conducted a series of interviews with Michael Jackson as part of an ITV documentary, Living with Michael Jackson. There was an outcry following the show mainly to do with Michael's relationship with teenager cancer patient called Gavin Araviso. I'm sorry if I get that name wrong. So the events preceding the crash were that on Saturday the 30th of August 1997, Diana left Sardinia on a private jet and arrived in Paris with Egyptian film producer Dodi Fayed, the son of businessman Mohammed Al-Fayed. They had stopped there en route to London having spent the preceding nine days together on board Mohammed's yacht, the Jonincal, I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, on the French and Italian Riviera. They had intended to stay there for the night. Mohammed was and remains the owner of the Hotel Ritz Paris and resided in an apartment on I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher these French names on the Rue Arisini Hosseni, a short distance from the hotel, just off the Avenue des Champs Elysees. I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher these names because I don't speak French, so I do apologise profusely for getting these names wrong. Henri Paul, the deputy head of security at the Ritz had been instructed to drive the hired black 1996 Mercedes-Benz W140 S-Class in order to elude the paparazzi, a decoy vehicle left the Ritz first from the main entrance on Place Vendome, attracting a throng of photographers. Diana and Fayed then departed from the hotel's rare entrance, the Rue Cambon, at around 0200 hours. On the 31st of August, heading for the apartment in Rue Arin Hassi, they did this to avoid the nearly 30 photographers waiting in front of the hotel. Diana and Fayed were the rear passengers. Trevor Reese Jones, a member of Fayed's family's personal protection team, was in the right front passenger seat. The occupants are not wearing seatbelts, which I find to be a little bit strange. And then after leaving the Rue Combon and crossing the Place de la Concorde, they drove along Cours la Reine and Cours Elbeteur, the embankment road along the right bank of the River Seine, into the Place de Alma underpass. According to biographer Andrew Morton, Paul was three times over the legal limit for drinking and driving and had taken a mixture of drugs prior to the fatal accident. I'm not exactly 100% sure how he was aware of that. Paul lost control of the vehicle at the entrance 
to the Pont de Alama tunnel. The car struck the right-hand wall and then swerved to the left of the two-lane carriageway before it collided ahead on with the 13th pillar that supported the roof. The car was traveling at an estimated speed of 105 kilometers an hour, or about 65 miles per hour, over twice the tunnel's 50 kilometer or 31 miles per hour speed limit. It spun and hit the stone wall of the tunnel backwards, finally coming to a stop. The impact caused substantial damage, particularly to the front half of the vehicle, as there was and still is no guardrail between the pillars to prevent this. Witnesses arriving shortly after the crash reported smoke. Witnesses also reported that photographers on the motorcycles swarmed the Mercedes sedan before it entered the tunnel. With the four occupants still in the wrecked car, the photographers who had been driving slower and were some distance behind the Mercedes reached the scene. Some rushed to help, tried to open the doors and help the victims, while some of them took pictures. Police arrived on the scene around 10 minutes after the crash, and an ambulance was on site five minutes later, according to witnesses. France Info Radio reported that one photographer was beaten by witnesses who was horrified by the scene. Five of the photographers were arrested directly. Later, two others were detained and around 20 rolls of film were taken direct from the photographers. Police also impounded their vehicles afterwards and firefighters also arrived at the scene to help remove the victims. Still conscious, Reese Jones has suffered multiple serious facial injuries and a head contusion. The front occupant's airbags had functioned normally. Diana, who had been sitting in the right rear passenger seat, who was also still conscious. Critically injured, Diana was reported to murmur repeatedly, oh my god, end quote. After the photographers and other helpers were pushed away by police, leave me alone, was another thing that she also said. In June 2011, the Channel 4 documentary Diana the Witnesses in the Tunnel claimed that the first person to touch Diana was off-duty physician Frederick Malliers, who chanced upon the scene. Malliers reported that Diana had no visible injuries but was in shock. After being removed from the car at 1am, she went into cardiac arrest and followed external cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Her heart started beating again. Diana was moved to the SAMU ambulance at 1.18am, left the scene at 1.41am and arrived at the, I'm going to butcher this name, Paiti Salpetri Hospital at 2.06am. Fayette, on the other hand, had been sitting in the left rear passenger seat and was pronounced dead shortly afterwards. Paul was also pronounced dead on removal from the wreckage. Both were taken directly to the Institut Medico Legal, or IML, Paris Mortuary, not to the hospital. Paul was later found to have had a blood alcohol level of 1.75 grams per litre of blood, which is about 3.5 times the legal limit in France, equivalent to about 2.2 times the legal limit in Canada, the UK, and the US. Despite attempts to save her life, Diana's injuries were too extensive, and resuscitation attempts, including internal cardiac massage, were unsuccessful. Her heart had been displaced to the right side of the chest, which tore the pulmonary vein and the pericardium. Diana died at the hospital approximately 4 a.m. Anesthetist Bruno Roux announced who did it at 6 a.m. at a news conference held at the hospital. Later that morning, French Prime Minister Lionel Jospin and Interior Minister Jean-Paris Chevement visited the hospital at around 1700. Diana's former husband, Charles Prince of Wales, and her two older sisters, Lady Sarah McCordwell and Lady Jane Fellows, arrived in Paris. I'm sorry if I butcher all these names, ladies and gentlemen. I do apologize. The group visited the hospital along with the French President Jacques Chirac and thanked the doctors for trying to save her life. Prince Charles accompanied Diana's body back to the UK later the same day. They landed at RAF North Holt and a bearer party from the Queen's Colour Squadron transferred her coffin, which was draped with a royal standard with an ermine border to a hearse. Her remains were finally taken to the Hammersmith and Fulham Mortuary in London for post-mortem examination later that day. That was part one about the death of Princess Diana. Join me next week as we delve into the many conspiracy theories revolving around her death. Until then.